1: We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver and I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're discussing the most famous coup of all times Act Three of Julius Caesar. Shakespeare's memorable depiction of the murder and his even more famous depiction of the aftermath, where Brutus and then Antony appeal to a confused citizenry for their support in this murder. The monologue by Antony, of course, is what most school students remember. And most with nightmarish memories of trying to recite these lines from scratch. Christy, why is it that English (laughs) teachers make students memorize Shakespearean lines? These kids never seem to really appreciate the effort required.
0: (laughs) I'm asked that question every single year all the time. And of course, there are several reasons. For First, it's a fantastic exercise in learning to memorize, and we all actually do need to learn how to memorize, and then we need to practice memorizing things. Even in this world where we can keep everything on our phone and we don't even have to remember our own telephone number, it's helpful to practice this skill. Secondly is that memorizing really helps us comprehend language. It forces us to think about things deeply while we're memorizing them and learning how to think about things in a deep way is actually very important and it's something that we do less often than you might think so no matter what you're thinking about even if you don't think it's very important like shakespearean lines might be it does actually help increase your ability to think through things and on a personal level even Uh, For your whole life, it's difficult and yet important to think through complicated dilemmas and value decisions and problems that don't have simple solutions, just like the problem here in Julius Caesar doesn't have a simple solution. And then the third reason, and perhaps the most important reason, the evil enjoyment of watching a child struggle through this kind of devilish exercise is something that I personally appreciate in this season of giving, which is... At this time, Christmas season, but every season is a season of giving in some sense. So, I'll give myself the joy of watching kids struggle and the memory work from time to time. It's not always Julius Caesar. <laughs> I think the,
1: the best word to describes your emotion is schadenfreude.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so,
1: you enjoy watching her suffering. Well... That uh, That's cruel, but um, yes, I have heard many a miserable student lament the evils of having to memorize Shakespeare, and I would suggest that not just a few of them probably hurl some curses and insults in your direction.
0: Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, well, back to the play. Ah. Um, in episode one, we spent most of our time discussing the real history of Rome and putting this play into context. In Episode 2, we walked through Acts 1 and 2 and really focused on the person of Brutus, who truly is at the heart of the play. Uh, We also met a string of characters that can be hard to tell apart. And, of course, there is Caesar and his wife, Calpurnia. There is Antony, who tries to crown him. There is Cicero, the old sage who speaks in Greek. Then there's a host of conspirators, and chief among them is Cassius, but there are others. There's Casca, and Cinna and Trebonius, and Metellus Cimber and Caius, Ligarius, and Decius. And it is important to remember all those names.
0: Well, I'm not sure it's important to really remember all those names. Obviously, some are more important than others. Cassius is the one that really leads the charge and stands out. But of course, don't forget Portia, Brutus's wife. She got some attention in Act II, and so does Calpurnia. As they both appeal to their husbands, and in both cases, their husbands don't listen to them, and they're silenced. Portia wants to know what the strange men are doing in her house. He lies to her and says she's he's sick, and she calls him out. Calphurnia tries to st- talk Caesar into staying at home from work. I think the lesson here is quite obvious. Hmm. Women should be running the show, but, you know, moving on, we'll talk about that Lots of more times,
1: <laughs> in, in every sure in every book, <laughs> I'll let I'll let you vent your pseudo feminism uh, over there.
0: Moving on, both of these acts really focus on the person of Brutus, and he is actually a very complex character. He's some ways in some ways really egotistical, but yet naive. He can be proud, and that's in a negative way, but it can also be in a good sense. Um, He's very blind by his own greatness, but then again, you see somewhat of an idealism in him, and that can be important, but I don't know if it's of any value to himself at this point, or if idealism creates success in a real world situation. So that's going to bring us to act three, which is indeed the heart of the play. In Shakespearean plays, I've said before, the climax is always in the third act. And remember, Uh, You know that the climax, as I think it should be defined in a literary sense, is not just the most exciting part of the story, but it's that point from which the protagonist can no longer return. And so, of course, if you kill Caesar, you've made your decision. You can't walk that back. There's no retreat. So uh, I would love to go through the entirety of this act in a single episode, and I really tried to do that. But honestly, I think there's too much here to absorb in under an hour, and I know that's kind of what we want to do. So let's at least get through Brutus' speech, and then we'll pick up next week with the famous or infamous Anthony lines. Does sound like a plan?
1: That sounds like a plan. Let's do that. So Act 3 begins on the morning of March 15th, 44 B.C., that historic day when Caesar, against all the warnings of nature and his wife, as we pointed out, heads to the capitol. The soothsayer is present and gives one last warning, which he ignores, as well as a letter, Artemidorus. <laughs> That's a tough word to it's say. It's a
0: big word, yes. yeah. Uh, the,
1: this letter that Artemidorus has written and tries to hand to him on his way in. Shakespeare really stays very true to the events as they are recorded by Plutarch. The conspirators surround Caesar with this um, this pretext of appealing to Caesar's decision to ban his Publius Simber. Uh, apparently, you know, Metallus Simber's brother, each one gets closer saying he has another reason. Finally, one conspirator, Casca, takes the first stab. And according to Plutarch, he at first tries to avoid the blows of each of the following stabs. They had decided that they would all stab him so that after the fact, no one could pin the murder on any one person. So it's by committee. It is said that he died by 23 different stab wounds. The one that took Caesar's spirit was the stabbing by Brutus. It appears Caesar really was shocked that Brutus had betrayed him. And according to Plutarch, when Brutus stabbed him in the privates, whatever that is, Caesar stopped trying to fight back and he just gave up. The words et tu Brute are said to actually be what he actually did say. And they're so famous that uh, Shakespeare didn't even bother translating them in English. So, so much for not looking like butchers. This is murderous mayhem.
0: It's really kind of a sad scene and and it evokes pity for Caesar. He's clearly not expecting it. They kind of come into him. Casca says, my hand speaks for me, and it looks like his heart is breaking as he looks up at a person that he clearly, truly loved.
1: Mm. Well, that's true. And and really, Shakespeare has done nothing, at least from my perspective, to make you think that Caesar really deserved any of this. Um, he's been described as sickly and epileptic and hard of hearing, and that he's an arrogant man, but he seems silly, but not at all dangerous. And so far brutus kind of looks like a bad guy and shakespeare is going to take it up one more level with this murder scene Uh, and as far as i can tell plutarch calls the swords bloody but shakespeare seems to play it up as much as possible Uh, he has all the conspirators dipping their swords in caesar's blood and then running around screaming
0: yes that seems strange to our modern sensibilities we wouldn't ever consider doing that but uh, that's my interpretation as well. They drag Caesar's body into the Forum, and they're going to leave it at the base of Pompey's statue. I'm assuming that's in front of the Capitol, but I couldn't really swear to that. When we, if you remember, when we went, went to Rome, we asked the guides at the Roman Forum where these spots actually took place, and... And he told me that Shakespeare gets away from history at this point. And there was a bit of vagueness of of where this would have happened had it been done in the way Shakespeare described it. And since it wasn't done, I don't know that I could figure out where this exactly would have happened in a fictional place.
1: Well, it, it seems that Caesar wasn't actually murdered in the middle of the form as it appears in the play. And there's a bit of mystery as to where Pompey's theater actually was. But in 2012, some Spanish archaeologists claimed to have uncovered in a dig a marker Augustus Caesar put up to mark the actual spot. So that was kind of exciting, two thousand years later. I'd say so. And and everything everyone thought they were going to fix up the spot um, because, as it is now, this location is ironically an area designated for stray cats. Strangely oh my. enough. But because of a, a lack of funding, this never happened. Uh, in fact, and in this this is kind of interesting, in March of 2019, Bulgari, the designer, has committed $1.1 million to fund the project. Uh, they funded the project to renovate the Spanish steps. So people think this will actually happen. And if you visit Rome starting in 2021, you can actually visit the spot. If you go now, all you're going to see is a cat colony. That's protected by the city and the city's Animal Humane Society.
0: Well, that might explain why the guy didn't want to take us over there. But, oh well. In the play... The murder is going to throw the city, and I'm sure it did in real life, the city into absolute chaos. Of course
1: it does. All coups do. Anytime there's a violent uh, takeover of a government, uh, it throws everybody into chaos.
0: Yes, and Brutus is going to get up with all the authority of his ancient fathers of Rome. As you can remember, his father or his descendants, not his fathers, founded the city of Rome, and he's going to try to speak to calm the people's fears. Now, for me, it's kind of easy to see this act as naturally divided into three parts. So, we're going to, so it's a big act. And so, you have the first part of the act where the murder happens. And in the location of where the murder happens, there's going to be this conversation between the conspirators and Anthony because Anthony had to bug off when he realized what was going on. Uh, and then Octavius shows up also in this scene and they're going to concoct. Shakespeare kind of is going to concoct the situation where he shows up at the exact same time that this is all happening. the scene, And then after that bit with at the scene of the murder, we're going to have this famous episode where they're going to give all these speeches. And then this act ends with this very odd scene, which we'll talk about next week, with a poor bystander who has the unfortunate circumstance of sharing the name all he has in common with one of the conspirators is they share the same name as one of the conspirators and this leads to an unfortunate incident as well so that's what act three consists of
1: uh it it seems that after the murder um anthony and every other senator who wasn't involved in a conspiracy uh ran as fast as they could except for one slow guy named Publius, who they just leave hanging around. I
0: know, and Shakespeare is going to include that into the play. But anyway, Anthony knew that any intelligent person would come after him. He's like next in line. And had it been up to Cassius, that's exactly what would have happened. But as you remember, this is where Brutus's idealism kind of kicks in. He's going to foolishly nix that idea the night before. Instead, he sends a messenger and Basically, well, Anthony sends in a messenger and asks, basically, are they going to kill him? Uh, It's interesting that he calls Brutus, oh, you're the noble, Brutus, are you going to kill me? Uh, He might be appealing to him as a good person. Uh, Maybe, obviously, I guess, Brutus has nurtured this reputation of doing the right thing, uh, being noble. Uh, Obviously, he was, because otherwise, why would Caesar be so shocked that he betrayed him? But anyway... Uh, he implies that he assumes, not him, but Brutus would be the next in line. And he says, If you can prove to me why Caesar deserved to die, and I'll quote Anthony, Mark Antony shall not love Caesar dead so well as Brutus living, but will follow the fortunes and affairs of noble Brutus through the hazards of this untrod state with all true faith. Meaning, I'll follow you loyally. Of course, this seems like a total lie to me, But maybe he would have been willing to follow Brutus if Brutus had been more convincing. I don't know. I'm not convinced that Anthony was doing anything but lying here. Nevertheless, he's going to deliver the line in a way that Brutus buys it. Uh, I think it's because that's exactly how this has all played out in Brutus's head. Everyone is just going to fall in line and do exactly what he thinks should happen. He's the natural leader. And as their natural leader of the conspiracy he should be the natural leader of the country.
1: Hmm. Well, I want to take a digression here for just a moment to look at Brutus's thinking. <laughs> he has a conversation with Cassius in the beginning of the play where he says, "If we kill Caesar, we're actually doing him a favor." If we shorten his life by twenty years, he has twenty years less of fearing death. So this this is the way that his cogs turn in his mind, and th- this is why we get to some of these points in the way he thinks.
0: But it, they're always self serving, you know.
1: <laughs> but they're always framed in a very noble fashion, always. even though they're self serving. Oh right. yes. Um, So, Anthony does something here I think should tip his hand, and of course, Cassius is never fooled by Anthony, Uh, but this business of going around one at a time and shaking every single conspirator's hand seems a little creepy, like he wants to look every one of them in the eye and remember who they are.
0: He actually is asked directly, will you be pricked in number of our friends? In other words, are you on our team? To which he doesn't answer but instead throws out what we will see is deadly bait. He says, can I produce his body to the marketplace and in the pulpit as becomes a friend, speak in the order of his funeral? This, of course, is a ludicrous request. He's absolutely the only one who is in a position to challenge Brutus. But Brutus, in his arrogance, does not seem to think of him as a threat. Cassius does, but over Cassius' persistence, he's going to say, Yes, of course, I'll speak first, and then you can talk. But under one condition, and this is his condition, and I quote, You shall not in your funeral speech blame us, but speak all good you can devise of Caesar, and... And say you do it by our permission.
1: Hmm. Propaganda. <laughs> this is the mistake that will cost him his life. And this is where idealism just doesn't make sense. Brutus seems to really truly believe that somebody could get up there and praise a person that Brutus himself has just murdered. And Brutus would be so detached from the event completely. Uh, it's almost as if Caesar has just died and we're going to eulogize him um, Without thinking about that butchered part in the middle.
0: Yeah, like he died of natural causes or something.
1: Right. This is uh, some very bizarre thinking.
0: Right. Uh, After Brutus' leaves, Anthony's going to deliver a soliloquy. And here may be a good time for me to make a little literary reminder. People often confuse soliloquies and monologues, and maybe it doesn't make a difference. Oh,
1: it does. I always like it when we get the little English lesson.
0: Well, they're both speeches, and uh, theater teachers say, this is a monologue, and you're going to memorize a monologue, or you're going to memorize a soliloquy. But in a monologue, by definition, you're speaking to an actual audience. So you, it's a speech and a play, but there are other people that you're talking to. Uh, just like we're going to see in a minute, these are speeches, and Brutus and Anthony are going to give them in a, in a forum. We've seen some by other people. Cassius has had a monologue all that. Uh, but a soliloquy is something different, and right before this, the episode where they're going to give the speeches in public... Anthony is going to give a soliloquy because he's going to give this long speech with no one else on the stage. So the purpose of the speech is for the benefit of the audience goers. Uh, And in this case, it's an apostrophe. Now an apostrophe, we talked about this in Frederick Douglass, it can be a punctuation mark, but it's also a literary term. It's a strategy when you talk to something or someone that isn't actually present with you or can talk to you back. So, in this case, we have a dead Caesar uh, on the floor. It's a dead body, and he is going to talk to it. So, and the reason why they do this in novels, if authors want you to know what the character is thinking, they can just say, so and so thinks this. But in a play, you don't really have a narrator, so the character itself must use words. And we're used to this. You know, in Romeo and Juliet, we know that Romeo loves Juliet because he says, Oh, what soft light through yonder window breaks. It's the east and Juliet is the sun. So we can watch him develop this passion for her through this. And sometimes we see it in movies when they have this voiceover uh, on the screen and the person's not talking. But anyway... uh in this, this kind case the
1: Shakespearean version of subtitles?
0: Yeah, kind of, or, you know, the talk voiceover. But in yeah. this case, the soliloquy is going to reveal that Anthony is in no way considering Brutus's offer, and he is going to go after Brutus. He says this, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth. And he's looking at the dead body on the floor. So he says, forgive me, bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. Over thy wounds do I now prophesy. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. In other words, oh, I'm just not going to get them. I'm going to start a war. And he ends by saying, This foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial and carrion means dead bodies basically saying you have no idea how many people are going to die there's going to just be dead bodies laying everywhere for this julius caesar
1: so we're about to see some revenge
0: yeah none of this oh just let me talk to lucian (laughs) especially
1: with that voice (laughs) well and as he's talking to dead caesar who should just happen to show up with a message from octavius caesar Caesar's grand nephew and heir, his sister Julia's grandson.
0: That's right. Uh, The messenger who shows up here is representing a character that we haven't seen yet in the play. So Octavius is this new person. He has the same name as Caesar. He's a real person. So tell us who is actually in real life Octavius Caesar, and then we'll try to Um, show how this all makes sense. Okay.
1: So Caesar had a son with Cleopatra. uh, His son was not his heir because he was Egyptian. Octavius, who was only 18 at the time, shows up here. And we see Shakespeare taking more and more liberties with the history because things really take a long time to take place. And he's going to wrap this whole thing up in a couple of acts. Um, In real life, Octavius had been sent by Julius Caesar to Albania to complete his military education, And when Octavius learns Caesar has been murdered, he comes back to Rome. When they read Caesar's will, they will learn that it was Caesar's wish that Octavius should succeed him, but Antony is actually in charge. Also in Caesar's will, Caesar had wished for his money to be spent on games for the general public. Antony, who had access to this, refused to release the money for it. And uh, Octavius is going to raise the money independently, and he's going to throw the games anyway. This made him super popular with the people. And because he was young, he was advised by everyone to not to try to take on Antony, but he decides to do it anyway. Cicero also puts his weight behind Antony. There's a civil war, and Antony is driven out of Italy. While away, somehow a deal is made, and he comes back to be co counsel with Octavius and this other guy named Lepidus. So we have a second triumvirate, and that's uh, where Act Four actually takes place.
0: Well, clearly Shakespeare wanted to leave all that out. I can, it's a lot, but yes. so in, in this case, he's just dropping Octavius and with this messenger, and he says Octavius is going to show up later. We're going to work out this whole thing. And then we're going to skip everything that you just said and move on with these two speeches to the uh, to the funeral scene. And then we're going to put Octavius in town so that in Act 4 we have a second triumvirate that mysteriously kind of picks up. Um, let's move on to the speeches. I think that's really the the heart of what people think about when they think about this flip uh, play or these really famous speeches.
1: And these are the ones you make these miserable children memorize.
0: Because what happens is, of course, they've dragged this body out into the middle of town and Brutus is going to give one speech and then he's going to give Anthony an opportunity uh, to give another one. And if you remember from the Frederick Douglass episodes, Aristotle, the father of rhetoric says to be effective You have to have three things, ethos, logos, and pathos. And if you don't come through with all three, you're going to fail. This is something Brutus obviously would know. In fact, we know he knows this because... Shakespeare, right before these speeches, is going to drop in Artemidorus as kind of this cameo appearance who happens to be the local rhetoric teacher. So in other words, he drops the AP language teacher in right here to remind you.
1: <laughs> so you would be the Artemidorus of the situation. Yes, okay. and to
0: say, Brutus, you know how to do this, but Brutus, he knows more than everyone. And in Brutus fashion, he's going to ignore the rhetoric lessons of his day, and he's going to do it his own way. So I want to read for us Brutus's speech, and then we'll talk about it.
1: Okay. Well, before you do, um, I do want to add one more historical note for the history buffs, although it's a small thing. The funeral speeches actually did not take place immediately after the murder. Uh, In real life, they were given on March 20th, five days later. In that time, Brutus had already taken over the government. He'd given out spoils to the conspirators. Shakespeare collapses these into one day for obvious reasons, uh, but he still does subtly suggest that Brutus is a conflicted character. Uh, Is he noble or is he just as ambitious as the rest of them? So with that thought in mind, Christy, read the speech and tell us what you think of it.
0: All right. Well, here is Brutus' speech uh, as he gets up in front of the plebeians. And so the plebeians are going to say, The noble Brutus is ascended, silence. And I can't imagine people being silent, but of course they did. Be patient till the last, says says Brutus. Romans, countrymen, and lovers, hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. If there be in this assembly any dear friend of Caesar's to him, I say that Brutus's love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all freemen? As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There are tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any speak of him, have I offended Who is here so rude that will not be a Roman? If any speak for him, have I offended who is here? So vile that will not love his country. If any speak for him, have I offended? I pause for a reply. And of course they're going to say none Brutus, none. We don't, we're not rude. We don't like Rome. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that you're going to see. And, uh, in some ways, the speech seems real, really self-deceptive. He's going to rely almost entirely on ethos. And as you remember, that means credibility. Uh, which, may I say, he gets at the beginning lots of credibility. Everyone knows who he is. The plebeians love him. They say that to him. They're silent for him. But it appears that Brutus is too full of his own credibility. Romans, countrymen, and lovers... Hear me for my cause and be silent you may hear. Believe me for my honor and respect to mine honor. He goes on to reference himself 26 more times in this short speech. He hijacks his own condemnation of Caesar talking about himself. He has no emotions. He has no imagery. He has no evidence of Caesar being evil. He basically says, as you know, I'm awesome, and I'm telling you, he was evil, and if I killed him, he deserved to die. He actually concedes to loving Caesar. In his most famous line, not that I loved Caesar less, but I loved more, Rome more, he goes on to say, Caesar was a bad person. He's going to accuse him of making you a slave. He was ambitious. He didn't care about our country, and if you care about our country, you don't like him.
1: Interesting. It sounds like the person who uses this line, my only fault is that I love too much.
0: <laughs> in some sense, yes.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, of course, Shakespeare makes him unlikable by um, and the readers of the day or the, the play watchers, they would have recognized that 26 times. He talks about I, 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 I. It's that stuff that makes you unlikable in a conversation, and Shakespeare uses it masterfully.
0: Well, and he resorts to name-calling. He's this or he's that. And if you like this, then you're this and you're that. And people do it all the time. But Aristotle will tell you that's a very short-sighted way to win an argument. And when you do that, you're going to leave yourself wide open to the better rhetorician. Brutus clearly has not been listening to Artemis, the old Greek rhetoric teacher, Because he's going to walk away from this scene almost smug. He is totally confident that his name, his good character, his infallible logic will win the day. We will see for ourselves how this will all play out when we open with Anthony's response to Brutus's appeal of endorsement for Caesar's murder. But let me go back again to the opening line. Because even in the logic, so he makes the case primarily about with his... With his ethos, but even his logic is somewhat circular in nature because he says, This believe me because I'm believable. That's the logic that we're going to see.
1: Which is an interesting aspect of groupthink. Brutus has been so insulated by his uh, inner circle that he's lost all reality of who he is in the world and how he influences people. Right, his inability to influence
0: because them. he thinks that's logic. He yes. thinks that's exactly what logic well, sounds like.
1: And logic is an amazing, wonderful thing if you start with the right premise.
0: <laughs> right, you say, "Hate him because he's bad." How do you know he's bad? Because I say he's bad. He's bad. Well, you're going around in circles. But beyond just that, he's going to go on to compliment the character of Caesar to some degree. He does not make the case, well he, actually let me say it this way, he, the only thing that he says that is of merit, he's going to say Caesar was an imminent threat to our freedom. But that he never explains how he was a threat to our freedom. What is the threat that he creates for us? Uh, there's certainly no evidence of anything in Caesar's past that would have indicated to the plebeians look, this was ambitious. Look, this is a threat to you. Look, this is what he was trying to do or had in the works to you to do. None of this is stated. The structure of the speech is actually beautiful, it's full of parallelism. They have all these rhetorical questions, this lofty language, lots of inversions. But actually, no teeth, no substance. And all this beautiful talk does what pretty words always do. They just kind of float away. And then, of course, one of the most boneheaded moves in Western history, he's going to give the podium to Mark Anthony and walk away as Mark Anthony literally drags the body to the podium to use as his visual aid. <laughs> that
1: is a compelling visual aid. I would pay attention at that point.
0: Yes. Uh, of course, the plebeians are going to chant Brutus's name as he walks off and make this subtle observation. Um, they say something that should really contradict, or if this is Brutus's legitimate fear, should really frighten him because they're going to say this, let him be Caesar. In other words, we're going to replace that tyrant who is bad with you because you're good. Well, the fact that he allows them to say this in some ways is going to indict Brutus' motives. Uh, He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want a leader like that. He doesn't say we're going to have a republic. We're going to have a vote. He doesn't do anything like that. Instead, he says, Mark Anthony, tell you how great Caesar is.
1: Hmm. Well, if you say it that way, it fails the say out loud test, as we like to say. (laughs)
0: It does for me, but for those who don't know what that colloquialism means, what do you mean when you say fails the say-out-loud test? Well,
1: everybody's experienced the idea that an idea in their head sounds good, but the moment they (laughs) say it out loud, it sounds stupid. And so that's what we mean, the say-out-loud test. It's kind of the idea like, uh, did you really think that through before you said that out loud?
0: Yes, and I would say it certainly applies here because as this body gets dragged to the front and Anthony gets up, we're going to see that this wasn't the best thought that Brutus has ever had.
1: <laughs> Brutus has had a lot of lame <laughs> thoughts at this point. In
0: this play, he has.
1: And that concludes this episode. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Uh, if you have been on our journey with us for the last several weeks, we appreciate it. We're thankful that you're listening in the, from all parts of the world. And uh, follow us on our uh, Instagram page. Follow us on our Facebook page. Check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com. You get some teasers on uh, what we're doing, what's coming in the future, all kind of good stuff. And most importantly, tell a friend, if you like our podcast, please clue them in as to what we're doing. Uh, We we love the support of the podcast and, and we love you helping us grow.
0: Peace out.